0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Hello, friends. Welcome back on the show today. Jonah Comstock, a veteran health tech and digital health reporter and editor-in-chief at PharmaForum. That's PharmaForum. They spell it weird. P-H-A-R-M-A-P-H-O-R-U-M. PharmaForum. I've known the guy a really long time. He's totally legit. He writes some amazing things, industry insider stuff, basically, obviously, for pharma. But he's a Columbia Journalism alumni who wrote for Psychology Today, and he really appreciates traditional journalism in the age of print, radio, and television. He learned from his grandmother all about the print industry, and that carried forward for him to really appreciate, shall we say, the pros and cons of social media. And now everyone's a journalist, and where do we find information? And when there were four drugs in the 1990s, and now there's 4,000 drugs in the 2020s, are we facing a better problem to have? And where's the legitimacy? Where do people go for trust? Where does industry go for trust? How do we separate the amazing things that are actually happening in science data research and getting those amazing things to the people that actually need them, the patients. It's a great conversation. Jonah Comstock, great guy. Enjoy the show. Jonah, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. It's good to be here. What's it like to be the only person I know that went to school for what they're actually doing now in real life? (laughs)
0: Well, I sort of did. (laughs) I went to grad school for what I'm doing, but I went to undergrad for English and philosophy. So (laughs) I think I can still relate to the people who have uh, very little
1: one-to-one connection there. Do you find yourself to be a closet anthropologist? I guess so.
0: It all kind of informs, right? I mean, I feel like almost any job in the world, you need to understand people, but Journalism, it's its particularly useful to understand individual people and people en masse, right?
1: Well, did you grow up, like, naturally curious? Like, why is this a thing? Like, what drives someone into journalism?
0: I was definitely a naturally curious child. Um, <laughs> my dad would say, like, a child who asked a lot of annoying questions, but those are kind of the same thing. But really, I actually, I'm one of those people who, it's, it's sort of ridiculous. I knew what I wanted to do when I was in ninth grade. When I started high school, I signed up for a high school paper. And just immediately, I was like, yeah, this is, this is it. This is my thing. And I pretty much didn't veer off of that. I mean, like I said, I didn't end up going to undergrad for journalism. And that's a whole thing. Like, there's a lot of schools of thought on that. But I pretty much always knew that was what I wanted to do. My grandmother was a journalist, sort of. She was a, a fact checker, and a proofreader, and a secretary at the Miami Herald. But she probably would have been a journalist if it had been a different time. Um, she was definitely a newspaper, newspaper woman, so that that was an inspiration.
1: Well, yeah, to know people that remember newspapers and how hard it was to just do regular media before there was other media.
0: Yeah, yeah. A, it is a dying breed. I did newspapers briefly after grad school. I, I copy edited at Newsday and at the St. Peterburg's, well, now the Tampa Bay Times. So I've... I've been in that world i've never actually written for a newspaper
1: <laughs> one of my high school friends that i went to college with their first job out of college was writing um personal ads <laughs> when back when you had to mail in your your uh, you know you the mail in your personal ad and they had to type it up and approve it and all that oh wow <laughs> that sounds a little like that sounds like it could be fun though you get some wild ones i'm sure one of my favorite newspaper stories was how i got a job in 1996 Because back in those days, and and, and listeners, please get mad at me if you've been struggling with Monster.com, not a sponsor. But here's how it worked in the 1990s. So the New York Times came out every Sunday with a huge version of itself and a help-wanted section that was like Encyclopedia Britannica. And anyone is nodding their head on the radio here, but you just looked at the jobs that were in the categories you liked, you kind of circled them with an ink pen so they kind of fell out of the newspaper, you stacked them on the table and you just dialed for dollars. And that's how it worked. Like there was no other way to get a job, you just called in. So in my case, I I was a college student that got sick and was supposed to do these things. My plan B was I fixed computers, I did tech support in the 1990s, which was kind of coveted in the space. Everyone hated Macintosh in the 1990s. So I, I did my pen in the New York Times. I crossed out all these things i threw on the table. I made three phone calls. I left three voicemails for three HR people at three companies. And the next day I got a call from one of them on my parents' quartered yellow rotary phone in the kitchen, just to put this in perspective to our listeners. And she's like, can I talk to Matt? Hi, my name is Lisa. I'm calling from Blah. We'd like you to come in. Can you come today? <laughs> so, so I helped on an express bus from Staten Island to the city. I met with this woman, Lisa, at this agency. I was hired on the spot and I started the next day. Wow. Please hate me because this is how things worked in the 1990s. You know, what's
0: amazing, though, is how rapidly that changed, right? Yes. Because like, I think I was doing that sort of process when I was applying for jobs in high school. But then by the time I got done with college, everything was on the internet and- You know,
1: (laughs) and then it went all downhill from there.
0: I don't know. I don't know how you
1: feel about the current state of of affairs. (laughs) I mean, I I look at it through Gen X glasses and, you know, it's easy to say things were easier back then. They were different and difficult for different people back then. But there was a certain level of just elegance and simplicity to getting things done. And the arbiters of your fate were just you. Yeah. Rather than a system. (laughs) Rather than an algorithm predicting your future. Do you remember the first article you wrote? First article of any kind ever? Like were you three in pre-K or something (laughs) that you hated the way the blocks were stacked?
0: No, I mean, I guess it would have been in high school. And, you know, my mom probably knows the answer to that question. She probably has it clipped out somewhere in a box. But uh, so the first story I can remember being really like, feeling really good about, like, hey, yeah, I wrote that and it's awesome, is it was a review of a poetry slam event that I think my school had put on. And uh, I don't remember what it was about my review of it that I liked so much, but I I remember, like, frantically scribbling down the really good lines from the poems, and then I interviewed some of the poets I liked the most. And, I don't know, it felt really like doing art about art and, you know...
1: (laughs) No, but your natural curiosity came in. It was no scandals, though, right? You weren't, like, doing an investigative piece on, like, you know, did they kind of steal somebody else's poem and mash it up and, like, wearing the wrong clothing, perhaps? Not much investigative
0: work in high school, but <laughs> on the college paper, there were a few, a few good ones. I mean, they, they probably seem pretty silly now. Some of them don't. Uh, one was when the Chronicle of Higher Education published all of the college president's salaries, and we got our hands on our president's salary. Oh, boy. And it was shall we say, not consistent with the fiscal messaging that was coming out from the administration. Uh-oh.
1: <laughs> That's a Scooby-Doo
0: noise. And there was another time when I was on, the, I was on campus for the summer, um, you know, doing some summer thing, and I noticed that they started uh, demolishing a, a campus building that they hadn't really told everyone they were going to be taking down, and it was really a beloved building. And, yeah, and they just sort of thought they would, They would take it down while nobody was looking. And so I wrote a front page story in the first issue of the year about that and made it into a thing. Of course, the building still came down, but I definitely annoyed some people.
1: So no one chooses to go into healthcare unless they're like losing a bet or have been fucked by it. What drove you into this space in the first place?
0: I honestly, Matt, I kind of wandered into it. I always wanted to be a journalist. And, and I think in the back of my mind, when I asked myself the question, like as a kid and as a teenager, what kind of journalist do you want to be? I wanted to be a science journalist. You know, I, I, I subscribed to wired and popular science and I really liked those stories. And, you know, I, I mean, I was a nerd too, right? I was a Trekkie and never, I mean, still am, but I, you know, I wanted to write about, I wanted to write about science. And so I did some science reporting during grad school and, you know, being on the general science beat led me into some health stories. You know, some stories about health research and some stories about what was at then the very, very beginning of mobile health. I I wrote a story about a smartphone app. It was a, it was an MRI machine that could run on a smartphone and and it was just a proof of concept at a university. But I, I wrote the story. I went to, I went to the university, I interviewed the guy. And then when I was applying for writing jobs, I applied for Moby Health News uh, which at that point was, was just a couple of years into covering what we still called the mobile health space.
1: Right. Remember those terms? Yeah.
0: <laughs> e health. E health. Um, e patients. Yep. And so, and so, you know I was no there was nobody applying at that point who had written about the space before. There just wasn't. And I had I had one clip under my belt that was you know related to the space, and so that made me stand out. And then once I got into it, it was kind of a dream job because. I discovered that even though healthcare is really weird and like nothing else, it can especially digital health, it contains everything you could want to write about. So there's science reporting, there's tech reporting, there's business reporting, there's court reporting, you know, there's it's and there's human interest, a lot of human interest. So it it really it's a you know, for a journalist, I think writing about healthcare is a great sandbox and also you're in demand, especially as time has gone by, it's only become more and
1: more. Yeah, the there's no short eye. supply of content to write about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so it, it was a win, but I, there was never a point in my career where I sat down and said, I'm going to be a healthcare journalist. It was more like a point where I sat down and I went, oh, I guess I'm a healthcare journalist now. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I don't think I can get out of it.
1: <laughs> like back when everyone said, I'm a social media guru. Remember those days too? Yeah. Yeah. I know all about <laughs> Friendster. Count me in. <laughs> nonsense it's kind of like not really a joke but it's a joke that you know you work for psychology today for a while it probably prepared you for dealing with everyone who's crazy because of healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, we're talking about I mean I was in psychology today in 2002 <clears> when they finally realized oh we should probably do some cancer stories because there was like cure magazine and coping magazine were there and they're like oh the first to recognize mental health and cancer welcome thank you very much yeah yeah, I mean it's it's
0: a good it's a good magazine. I think trying to write about psychology for you know for the layperson, um, because you're always walking that tightrope of am I oversimplifying it or am I being too esoteric? Mm-hmm. And it's like. A lot of times, no matter what you write, somebody's going to be mad. Either the scientists are going to be mad or your readers are going to be mad.
1: Well, again, that so. harkens back to the day when you didn't know what the readers thought. <laughs> you didn't care what the readers thought. You just put shit out there. There was no clapping back and comment section, you know, in Life magazine.
0: I mean, one of the cool things Psychology Today did write, I think, you know, during that moment when all of the newspapers and magazines were trying to figure out, like, what's this Internet and how do I use it so it doesn't kill me? Um <laughs> Is they started the, they started two things. They started the Psychology Today Therapist Directory, which is still one of the most complete. I mean, now I think there are companies starting to really go at it with a bunch more like big tech money. But for a long time, if you were looking for a therapist, you went to Psychology Today and you searched for one, and it you know had a list of what their specialties were, who took what insurance. So that was a huge smart thing for them to do. And the other big thing is they started the Psychology Today Blog Network, where. Wait, what's um,
1: blogs? Wait, remind me again. What, what are these <laughs> What are these things you refer to called blogs? Yeah, uh, it's short for weblog.
0: <laughs> 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 no, so the, they, you know, one of the things we had to do as an intern was we had to go and just like reach out to, you know, professors and, you know, anyone with credentials who, you know, wrote about or talked about psychology and come ask them what they were like to write a blog for us. And then once we got them set up on the platform, it was like, all these random, you know, psychologists, professors, therapists, social workers, they just had
1: access to our CMS. So acronym alert for the layperson, CMS, content management system.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: So that's, uh, that's the back end of an online publication
0: basically. And they, they couldn't, they didn't have the access that let them go in and, and change anything, but they had their own little blog that they could edit. And we only edited it after the fact. So what that did was that just like, it hugely amplified their, their, cadence of content right which when you're a magazine you're you're publishing one magazine a month with maybe like I don't know 10 stories in it and now you've got these blogs that are you've got hundreds of blogs on your blog platform that are updating on a daily basis and it it kind of upped their credibility because like instead of just being journalists writing about psychology now you've got this platform where you've got phds writing about it so I always thought that was a really really smart thing to do, at a moment when people were still figuring out how does this, how does this work?
1: Right, and that, that speaks to, you know, life before everyone was a journalist.
0: Yeah, yeah, or <laughs> that moment when everyone became a journalist.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, a guy. We, we can look back with disdain or optimism or pick your grievance of choice. We went from, I mean, for context, I was diagnosed in the 90s when there was nothing, and now there's too much shit. And how do you figure out where things are? But I want to talk about that specifically when we get back from the break. But quick question before we go. Is it still called Moby Health News?
0: (laughs) Yes, it is. While I was there, and of course, you know, I I left Moby Health News at the beginning of this year for Pharma Forum. We can talk more about that. But uh, while I was there, I think the conversation about is it time to rename Moby Health News came up at least three times. Um, (laughs) Every time it did, everyone said, yeah, we probably should. But no one ever actually
1: took the steps to do it. All right. All right. If anyone's listening for Moby Health News, the one person on the show that listens to my show, all right, we're going to be on a rebranding quest for the next couple of years. So prepare yourself and we'll be right back uh, with Jonathan Thompson. All right, we're back with Jonah Comstock, and uh, dude, when did we first meet? Were you trying to poach me for a, a cancer article or something?
0: Yeah, no, I think I I think I had you on my podcast, maybe on HIMs Cast, or else maybe I needed a, a patient speaker for a webinar or something.
1: Right, right, and right.
0: Uh, and I don't I don't know who even recommended you to me. It might have been like might have been Matt
1: Holt. <laughs> oh, shout out to Matt Holt, that guy. Uh, for the listeners, Matt Holt was one of the original pioneers of digital health and consumer space with a platform called Health 2.0, and it was the first time anyone used like 2.0, and it was really the dawn of what we're talking about here with Jonah of when everyone became a citizen journalist, a citizen activist, a citizen advocate.
0: Yeah, and you know, Matt, I think there's a parallel there, In I mean, obviously, between sort of like patient, right? like healthcare consumerism and patient activation, right? And and when everyone became not a doctor, but you know, yeah, right, right, right. considerably more informed about their health and, and a much more kind of, yeah, informed participant, uh, the internet democratized information and that shook up every field uh, to different extents.
1: Well, I remember again, this is like a history lesson here. Back when the internet was was functional and worked before it got corrupted and terrible, in it, in its heyday, Facebook was fantastic, at least for the work we did with it with uh, Stupid Cancer, because it was like the one place to flock that was seemingly unbiased. They hadn't monetized. There were no ads yet. There were nice groups and it, it just all worked out. We had half a million people in our pocket to do great things with and activate and give information to and have cross pollinations and sharing stories. You know, then it got all shitty and crappy. You know, Facebook, not a sponsor at this point. Now, I've been off it for years now, but what is your take on that? You know, social media is now a predetermined source for people instead of actual journalistic credible content.
0: The tools that exist have morphed and changed. New tools have come out, tools have fallen away. I think there was a sense at the beginning that we thought that the internet was this thing that eventually was going to settle in, you know, it was in flux right now because it was new, but it was going to settle in, but it hasn't really settled in. It's, it's always changing. And there's, and I don't think anyone could have predicted this kind of generational aspect to social media where like no social media platform can be eternal because the kids will not be on the same platform as their parents, and I feel like in twenty years TikTok will be the boring parent social media platform, right? Maybe it already is. I know there's a lot of, <laughs> <laughs> but there's a natural kind of churn to these things that's just uh, I think I think forever, and so you're never going to be able to kind of set up shop on a social media platform and and have it work the same way for you forever. One of the reasons journalists like LinkedIn is because LinkedIn has sort of uh, has sort of stayed, I mean, it's it's kind of uncool, but at least it's been consistently uncool for a long time.
1: Well, it's you know? it's, it's, it's a nerd playground, and there's a sense of legitimacy it really hasn't lost. Yeah, there are some crazy people that leave shit in the comments, but it, it's kind of a neutral zone of just thought leadership, at least how I have used it and experienced it. I was one of the first people on it, like, what, it 12 years ago, 10 years ago? And I really found it to be a place that was for in each vertical of, of nerds that want to learn from each other. And it's not about like I'm better than you when I did this and you know, like the, the trophy case like everything else is. Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, it never tried to be a cool spot for teens. So it right. couldn't get it couldn't get ditched as a cool spot for teens. It's it's an adult platform for networking and sharing ideas and it's managed to kind of be that.
1: <laughs> so in your reporting these days, are you largely focused in like a bubble for specific audiences and industries or do you look at trends like, you know, going back to your – how social media reverberates and evolves? There are now really influential, credible people using TikTok that I don't even know about because I don't have it that are espousing information that's valuable to people and they're trusting and they're building a, a reputation there for not being idiots and jerks and, and giving real sound advice To patients consumers the entire healthcare sector how do you feel about that
0: first of all i think it's great obviously it's always hard to 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 separate the wheat from the chaff and and you know people are using these platforms for health misinformation and that's a a big deal too but i think like what i've seen of you know doctors and nurses who are using youtube who are using tiktok to, to educate or just to share their experiences you know during COVID, i think that was really valuable too I mean, I think it's it's really great because the healthcare system is so, uh, what's the word? You know, if you're outside it, it's it's dense, it's it's complex, it's it's unapproachable. And so, if social media can break that down, can introduce us to kind of the human beings inside that system, I think that's really fantastic. On the business to business side, I've been just really impressed by some of the kind of new media journalists that have emerged like nikhil krishnan from out of pocket he's he gives he does this he's got a slack he runs too but he also does a newsletter where he talks about complex you know issues in health tech and health tech policy um but he does it with memes and he does it with you know charts. there's a there's a fun to it and that's what i've been searching for i think the last few years in my in my professional process is like how do you, you how do you be business to business and be a serious credible respectable source for industry people but also understand how media works now and how it's it's a very personable thing it's a very you know it's a very casual thing so so i think that's like the holy grail if you can figure out how to do it in a way that is is kind of where you you can respect yourself.
1: Yeah, I like how you use the word relax too, because yeah, there's gonna there be a lot of really serious stuff that has to be out there, but these days, yeah, maybe it's like casual Fridays every day in digital health news and whatnot, because you wanna be relatable to people without sounding horribly wonky, even if the person reading or listening is a wonk.
0: And the other thing it'd be to be is you actually do sometimes wanna do some signaling that you know what you're talking about, right. and you do that by being wonky. But that's been kind of refreshing. My first year at Pharma Forum is like, I I have made no secret to anyone who I've interviewed that that I'm not a pharma guy yet, and I've got to learn all the stuff about this space. And so I just let people tell me, I say like, you know, tell me what this is all about. And you know, if you don't, if you aren't an expert, don't pretend you are, let people teach you and hopefully bring a fresh perspective uh, because you're hearing about something for the first time maybe.
1: So let's get in the weeds here. What are you writing about these days? Pharma Forum sounds daunting, you know, to the layperson. It sounds like the gates of Mordor. But, you know, to the insiders, there's a lot of trends that matter. Do you see any big heat maps happening? Where to begin? One thing
0: I think I didn't really appreciate about pharma until I started writing about it is how much it is like two businesses. I mean, it's probably a lot more than two businesses, but the marketing side of pharma – is doing a whole separate, complicated project from the researchers in the R&D side. And both of those things have been hugely shaken up in recent years by technology trends. But on the marketing side, it's more about, you know, it's it's about communication modalities. The sales rep, as as we've always known it, has kind of gone out of style, partly because of COVID, but partly was happening before that in favor of these sort of omni-channel outreach. So you've gotta be like a social media guru and, and digital, digital media and, and videos, all these things that pharma companies are all doing to kind of try to stay ahead of each other when it comes to communicating with their patients, communicating with the doctors they're trying to get to prescribe. So it's all, that whole world was kind of you know hardly knew anything about. And then on the, on the research side, the recent kind of advances, and and I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go in too much on this because I'm not, as I said before, <laughs> not an expert. But but basically, like precision medicine is here, you know, gene gene editing is here. We're we're deeply understanding what's happening inside cells and even inside
1: tumors. Well, it also speaks to the growing divide between healthcare marketing and research innovation, because. They can't even keep up with what's coming out there to tell people about this and when they try, it stinks. I mean, every single TV ad that's out there for pharma, like they're like speaking to a patient that doesn't exist. It's like, hey, go to a beach and a pier and have bathtubs on a hill and we'll talk about your moderate severe something, something. This is not how people <laughs> think and do. I'm declaring war on, on terrible patient marketing budgets because they, they're just useless because they don't catch up with what people need to hear and the lawyers just ruin everything. But again, you know, If we're bifurcating, yes, the research side, I was diagnosed in the 90s, there were four drugs. Now there's 4,000, right? A better problem to have, but how do you make sure people know they exist is where, that's kind of like my my hill to die on, you know, just because it's there doesn't matter if it can't be, I don't know, reimbursed or the doctor won't even tell you about it. And how do you feel about this? I mean, I don't know if you're covering a lot of patient advocacy stuff. I can definitely give you enough fodder for 20 years of research and, and, and articles, but this whole idea of, you know, uh, be an advocate, ask your doctor, like, does anyone really ask their doctor? I mean, I think my experience,
0: and this is secondhand experience, uh, is that is that when it gets real serious, you do, right? You know, a, a certain kind of person gets diagnosed with something serious, They, you know, and I'm sure you know, they become an expert on it. And then they say, hey, there was this clinical trial with uh, seven people that just was done in Germany, and it seems relevant to my case, doc. <laughs> They go deep, and I, I think doctors probably feel different ways
1: about that kind of thing. Well, it used to be people would show up with, like, 27 stacks of Google search results, and now they're coming with, like, mobile app data of different things if they can hopefully find it on Google, which is still a blessing and a curse, right? Yeah,
0: and I mean, it's I mean organizing information, I think, is, is huge, both on the, you know, not even just for, for patients, right, even for doctors, like, being able to know all the latest research, being able to identify when you have a patient who could benefit from something that's you know, either in clinical trials or, or new. And I mean, that's kind of the reverse of the project the pharma companies marketing arms are trying to do, right? Of like telling, getting the word out about your drug, but then also if you're a doctor, just like knowing everything you need to know on top of everything else that you have to do. I think that's a problem that tech companies have been working on for years, but I don't know. I don't know that anyone would consider it solved, right? Because right. the volume of of research, like you said, four thousand drugs, you know, it's increasing. Really, that's exactly what we're
1: doing. And, Do you have a sense of who your readers are. You're very prolific in your column. We're going to link to your column in the episode notes. But you know, who's reading this? Our ideal reader at
0: Pharmaform is is pharma execs. So, pe- you know, people, and not necessarily the top of the food chain. Execs usually, usually in B two B, you're not writing for the CEO. They're too busy. You're writing for The people who have the ear of the CEO. Mm -hmm. So mid-level execs. Um, And it's, we've also, this is a whole separate thing. And talking of journalism, you know, digital journalism is not a newspaper and people don't pick it up and read it cover to cover like a newspaper. Right. To some extent, you're writing different stories for different audiences and trusting that they're going to find them. So you can write about kind of different topics and, and every story doesn't have to be for every person. So the, the the kind of the audience we think of when we're writing and that we write for um, and that we, you know, sell to our advertisers is a pharma exec audience. And I think we do have a lot of readers who fit into that bucket, but we have a whole lot of readers who don't fit into that bucket too. You know, we've got people who are in sort of a, the health startup world or or um, or investment world, you know, who are, are typically people who really want to know everything that's going on. Occasionally, you know, we do have
1: patients interested patients. All right. So, lightning round, final question is: Does anyone really innovate anymore? What does innovation mean? Is is innovation the new? I don't know, uh, guru. <laughs> what are the <laughs> What are the tropes of the two thousands?
0: <laughs> That's a great question. I think there's a whole bunch of things that everybody likes to say that they're doing: innovation, digital transformation, patient centricity. Yeah. And. Yeah, you really do have to kind of you have to ask for the receipts, right? <laughs> yes, um, right yes, you do. <laughs> the other thing about innovation that I think people don't understand is that the fun, obvious part about innovation is the easy and ineffective part, right? Which is coming up with good ideas, right? And ideas are a dime a dozen. Anyone can come up with good ideas. Putting them into practice in a sustainable way that leads to a long-term change in how your organization works is very, very hard. That's why I kind of prefer the term change management. I mean, I guess that's not exactly an alternative term to innovation, but I'm more It's actually one more syllable. Are... I've also written a lot about innovation in healthcare and, and gone to a lot of panels about innovation in healthcare. And I really think like so often it's it's all about upfront, we're really excited about this big idea and maybe we run a pilot of it. But, like, it's that next step that's hard, right? Right. It's, okay, you've got the pilot. Now, how do we make this a thing? And someone said something once at an event, and I wish I could remember who said it because I would love to give them credit, but it has stuck with me, even if the the speaker hasn't. I think it was someone from Brigham and Women's, I think. And what they said was, don't just plan for what happens if your pilot fails. Plan for what happens if your pilot succeeds. (laughs)
1: You know that's a great way to end the interview. Jonah Comstock, veteran health tech and digital health reporter, editor in chief at Pharma Forum. Check it out at Pharma Forum. That's P H A R M A P H. I see we did there. P H A R M A P H O R U M dot com and Twitter at Jonah Comstock. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Out of patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production the executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. It's mixed and edited by Kyle Moore If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855 audio 66, that's 855 audio 66 to share your healthcare shitness with us and we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health visit offscript.com That's offscript, no t, dot com.